and welcome to the TES Scotland podcast. I'm Emma Seath, TES Scotland senior reporter, and I'm joined by Henry Hepburn, TES Scotland news editor. Hi, Henry. Hello, hello. And our guest, Bruce Adamson, Scotland's children's commissioner. Hello, Bruce. Hi there. Bruce Adamson was raised on a small farm in New Zealand where going off and being a lawyer wasn't really something that happened, as he himself has said. But he did it nonetheless. And in 2002, he arrived in Scotland just after the Scottish Parliament was established and became one of the founding members of the office he now holds when it was first established in 2004. He was also a founding member of the Scottish Human Rights Commission. That in turn led him to work for the UN and the EU, mainly in post-conflict countries. Now, as Scotland's third children's commissioner, he says he's in his dream job. Or at least that's what he said when I interviewed him back in 2016, just after he was appointed. It'll be interesting to see what he has to say now. Bruce Adamson, welcome to the TES Scotland podcast. (laughs) Thank you for such a warm welcome. Um, the last time we spoke, I think that you were fresh out of a pee with Joe session. <laughs> Are you missing Joe? Has your uh, fitness deteriorated since uh, lockdown ended? <laughs> it, 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 it absolutely has. I'm, I'm, miss, I'm missing the live pee with Joe. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go back and do some of the old ones, but I'm not as disciplined as, as I was. So um, it, it's definitely starting to show. <laughs> Um, I think a lot of people will be doing a lot of reflecting back in the past six months. You know, it's just over six months since the, the well, what looks like we may be referring to as the first lockdown started. Um, looking back over those six months, what for you personally has been your been your high and low points? I think the, the last six or seven months has been the the hardest in in my professional life, um, and and it's been it's been really tough. And I think from the the early days where we were just trying to figure out what was going on and had huge concerns about things like, like food insecurity and poverty, about how education was going to work, how we were going to keep children safe, um, digital exclusion, um, particularly children with disabled children with other additional support needs. Um, so that real challenge of just trying to figure out what was going on. And then as we started to, to work through the lockdown, just, um, all sorts of um, unanticipated things arising. And I think the, um, the, the hardest thing for me, I think, is, is just been um, trying to keep spirits up, trying to kind of keep focused on making sure that, that children are getting the things that they need. And um, just that, that huge uncertainty and speaking to, to children and young people and, and their parents and just the, the levels of anxiety and the concerns I had about their mental health, I think that's, the, that's been the, the, the toughest thing. Um, the best thing I think has, has been um, just seeing uh, how amazing children and young people have been at contributing to their communities from the, the PE with Joe to the, the kind of rainbows on windows to, to the clapping for the NHS, to all the, the little things that, that children and young people were really doing to, to keep spirits high, to keep their families going, to keep their communities going and, and how that started to manifest online. And so a lot of the conversations that I would have usually had visiting schools and, and communities, suddenly I got to have those, those online. Um, and, and that's been, been a real high. And again, just, just yesterday, I, was, I, I met um, hundreds of children from the, the Northern Alliance um, uh, uh, improve, uh, the partnership. Um, and so schools all across the north of Scotland, um, right from kind of primary twos right through to senior senior school. And um, I don't think I've laughed um, so much in, in the last few months. Um, and just that energy that we can still get through some of that digital engagement has been, been a real high and, and a big learning point for me in, in that you can still do um, a lot of that engagement um, digitally. So um, 
Were you were you kind of in some ways were you quite used to doing that at digital engagement because with having family who live on the other side of the world you know so did you have you know sort of um, habits that were already quite well established of keeping in touch with your family on Skype or Zoom or whatever the the medium. Yeah, I, I thought that I did, but actually I was, was really tested. I mean, one of the things, because New Zealand's on the other side of the world, is the time difference. And so usually someone's in the morning and someone's in the evening, and it has to be kind of quite planned and structured. And um, But the, the move to kind of almost being fully online um, was, was a real challenge. I, I, I kind of consider myself to be kind of quite, quite competent at all of this stuff, but I found it really challenging and, and draining and, and realised that there's a lot of different platforms I hadn't been um, aware of. And, and some days where you're on five or six different digital platforms, all of which are slightly different, finding the leave button and the mute button are always, always a bit of a challenge. Um, but also engaging with children and young people differently. Um, that, that, that was, that was, that's been really different. And particularly because a lot of the work that I'd done previously was linked through schools. Um, that change to, to when children are, are in the home, kind of quite, quite, quite different. And how about reaching them in the home as well? Because I guess that the school acts as this portal where you can access, you know, hundreds of children. But when that's taken away, then, you know, how did you, how did you sort of manage to kind of keep in touch with young people? Yeah, it, it, it was a lot harder. I, I had the advantage with some of the older um older children, I've got my own young advisors spread all around Scotland. Um, and so they were really good at kind of letting me know what was happening with, with them and their friends and their communities and also the, um, the Scottish Youth Parliament as well. Again, they had kind of quite well established networks and a lot of the, um, the third sector organisations again had really, really strong networks. So I was able to kind of reach some of the, the young people and talk to some of the young people and children who were already part of um, standing groups. But, but finding the, getting to the others was, was, was was very very difficult, and I don't think we ever we ever kind of cracked that one. Um, and I think that it was one of the, the big challenges is suddenly kind of moving, and you've got parents across the country and teachers across the country trying to to focus on education and providing some way of kind of socialisation and, and kind of other activity for, for children and young people. Um, and everyone was really fo- focused on that, and so um, I, I was really aware about how much kind of pressure that, that people were under. So I was, was keen to find out what was happening, but but I didn't want to kind of add to the pressure by creating kind of too many new additional events and things. Just to go back a little bit, you you said you laughed a lot yesterday. Can you tell us what in particular made you laugh? Uh, I, I spend a lot of my time <laughs> laughing when I'm working with children and young people. It's my it's my favourite part of the the job, which I I absolutely love. But um. Had some really kind of beautiful moments where we were talking, particularly around the incorporation of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and so we were um, we were talking about what rights are and why and why they're important. And the the primary school classes that I was speaking to um, was was there was one primary school class that was P twos and one um, the numbers that were kind of P six and P seven. And I'd had quite a long conversation. I thought I was doing quite well about talking about the United Nations and talking about us all coming together to create all of these rules and. Um, and it was, I thought it was going really well. And we were having this, this wonderful discussion. One of the, the older children was talking about the difference between economic rights and cultural rights and um, was, was really, really powerful. And then, and then a P2 came on um, with a question, which was, um, what are rights? And it was 45 minutes into the session. And I was just saying, right, I've obviously not done as well as I thought. <laughs> and kind of coming back to kind of discuss that. And then um, just some of the kind of really beautiful questions that they have um, about me and 
um, and and pets and things and guessing guessing my accent is always was always fun as well. That that always is always fun. And then my question that I always ask children and young people um, is about how many children do they think are in Scotland? Because my job um, is obviously to promote and safeguard the, the rights of all of the children and young people. So everyone up to 18 or up to 21, for those with care experience all across Scotland. And I always ask this when I go into schools and, and it's amazing the answers that you get from kind of two or 3,000 or two or 300 right through to billions. Um, and so that, that's always um, really funny. Um, and particularly when, because there were so many children on the call, um, it was, that was, um, that was really entertaining. <laughs> I mean, you were saying there, you know, sort of about all of the different things that you were concerned about as we sort of went into lockdown and, and then as we were sort of trying to deliver online learning and who had access to a reliable internet connection, who had access to devices, um, and now, obviously, that's sort of behind us for the time being or or, or, or for most of us. <laughs> um, so now that schools are back, what is it that you're, you know, sort of what are your concerns? What do you think that the key issues are? Um, I, I don't think that those, those other issues have, have, have quite quite gone away yet. And I think particularly, as you said earlier, that, that there's always the chance that we're going to have more restrictions in place. So I'm still very concerned about those issues from, from earlier on. The thing I'm probably most concerned about at the moment is, is mental health in terms of the really difficult time that everyone's been through um, over the last few months. So a lot of change, a lot of disruption. And then that transition um, back into um, classroom-based learning um, and, and again, we've, we've got children across the country that have suffered bereavement. Everyone suffered disruption. Um, we've had teachers that have done an amazing job transitioning into um, virtual learning, preparing for blended learning, back in classrooms with, with um, a, lot of, a lot of uncertainty around what restrictions and what protections would be in place. And so there's a, there's a huge amount of stress around at the moment. And I think that, that the thing I'm most concerned about is making sure that, that we can get the time to provide support for every single child um, in Scotland. And, and I'm hearing a lot of, of that from, from teachers and parents. And, and I mean, how would, you envisage, how would you envisage providing that support? Well, I mean, there'd been a commitment previously to provide more school counsellors in schools. I think, I think that's, that's really important. I think, I think we need to look at... at what um, kind of counselling services we can provide inside school and, and out with school. I'd like to see kind of a, an individual assessment for every single child just in terms of where, where they're at and, and then putting in place additional supports. Um, teachers always do an amazing job with um, knowing their students and, and finding out what, what supports that they need, but it, but it shouldn't, just be up to, shouldn't just be up to teachers. We need, we need um, as much other support that we can put into the, the school community to make sure that we're supporting children because it's even the most resilient children are, are really struggling at the moment and that's manifesting in a lot of ways that, that, that I'm hearing about um, which is which is really worrying um, so getting that support to children is probably the, the most important thing right now um, and there's still high levels of, of anxiety and, and as we're seeing every day changes in the restrictions and things um, children children see the anxiety in, in adults around them um, but they're also feeling it directly themselves. So the mental health of children and young people is, is probably the, the number one thing that I'm, that I'm working on at the moment in terms of um, saying very strongly to government, we need to make sure that there's more resource um, in and around schools and communities to, to support children's mental health. And you mentioned the, this uh, flagship policy of a, uh, you know, access to a counsellor in every secondary school in Scotland, which uh, you know, the, the target for that was this August, this you can put back slightly. 
Um, has it been undermined at all by everything that's happened in the past few months and how much, if it is realised, how much of a difference do you think that can make? It'll make, it, it'll make a huge difference when it's in. I mean, it, it's, it's a shame that it was delayed, it, perhaps understandable, but, um, but I think, I think we, should, we should build on, build on that. I mean, it was, was a, a big commitment, but um, I think, I think we, can, we can do more. And certainly the young people that I've spoken to um, that already have access to, to school counselling um, have placed a high value on that. Schools uh, are really safe space for, for most, most children, and schools aren't just about... <laughs> As you and, and everyone listening knows, um, schools aren't just places of, of education. They are places of community. They're places of safety. They're, they're places of socialisation. And, and many, many young people have told me that that um, getting additional supports through school is is a is a really valuable thing to them, rather than kind of having to access it separately through through health services or anything like that. So, school based counselling um, is something that that's a really powerful support, and children value it very, very highly. Um, and it allows um, us to kind of uh, destigmatize uh, a lot of stuff around the, the mental well-being that, that that we all need to think about. Um, so, so the sooner that can be done, that can be done, the better. I know many schools, many local authorities have been working on this, but but it's something that I'm particularly concerned about. Um, and as we've seen through the, through the lockdown, because of things like digital exclusion, because of things like the impact of poverty. Um, there's been a disproportionate impact on on some children and young people, and those are the ones we really need to focus our attention on, as well as recognising that every single child um, needs additional support at the moment. Were you very keen to see schools go back full time, though? Do you think that that was the that's been the right decision? Yes, I, I, I was. Um, I think right at the start, we'd we'd raised concerns um, around. The, the fact that when children are out of schools, their, their, their rights are incredibly impacted. Um, School-based learning is uh, far and away the best way to give children not just formal education, but all the things that go that, that go with it in terms of, again, socialisation. It's also a place where, where many children access additional services and supports like, like free school meals and like counselling, as we were, we were talking about. Um, schools play an important role in child protection and finding out what's going on in children's lives. So having children in schools is hugely, hugely important. And this has been recognised by, by the UN and others um, uh, that the, the impact on children of being out of schools, again, on their mental health and, and the limitations on their rights is, is really profound. So I think it's important that we prioritise schools while balancing um, public health and the individual health of, of people in schools. And so, so particularly kind of teachers and other adult staff, uh, many of whom um, have additional vulnerabilities. So we always have to think about keeping them safe and making sure all the, the mitigation measures are in place. We have to think about wider public health and balance those, um, those interests, that wider right to ensure public health and the right to, the right to protect life um, needs to be balanced against um, the, the impacts to public health of, of schools going back. Um, but I think it, it is the right decision to prioritise schools and to keep them open um, as long as as long as we can. And I think that that's now coming through quite clearly from government, which is useful. Do you, you know, in terms of just that, that issue that we were talking about before about digital poverty, and we know that there will be children who are having to self-isolate and so they're out of school for a couple of weeks or whole classes who are maybe having to self-isolate. We know just now that in US, for instance, this couple of schools there are now closed up until the October holidays, yep. you know, so um, do you think now we're equipped to 
deal with these interruptions to children's learning? What do we still, are there still things to do in terms of making sure that there's equity of access for all young people to this online world where we built these communities like PE with Joe <laughs> so that everybody, you know, so that if we're in that position again, everybody can sort of keep in touch with their teachers. That kind of not being able to, to access uh, fast internet, not having um, devices at home um, enough for, 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 for each child and maybe having parents working as well. Um, those, were, those were real concerns and it was um, really concerning how how slow it was for the responses to come to that. It was very welcome. Government eventually um, committed thirty million pounds, but again, that that still hasn't been rolled out and and, um, and delivered in a way that, that we need it to be. And so, um, I, I still do have have real concerns that that we're nowhere near where we need to be um, for eventual lockdown, but also for where, where children and young people are at the moment. If you've got um, if you're self isolating, if if you're um, yeah if we're having kind of local lockdowns, um, but also for, for some young people who haven't been able to go back to school yet. Um, and again, we've, we've been working with a number of families um, with children with additional support needs um, who, who haven't been able to, to, to get proper education provision back. And um, we, need, we need to do a lot more to make sure that, that that's um, deliverable, I think. Can you tell us a bit about the children who are still out of education then? You know, so who is impacted by that? Yeah, so so a number of children that were receiving receiving kind of special education. Um, some some of some of those um, plans have been put back in place. There's there's some families that um, that have still got concerns about going back because of the vulnerabilities of of their their children, um, and and so uh, are still keeping keeping children at home. Um, and so one of the one of the things that that happened uh, when schools were closed down, um, what we we lost was a lot of the the work that was going on around individual planning um, for, for children and young people. And so um, what's really important is that, that each child uh, gets uh, education provision that, that's right for them. And um, there's a lot of children at the moment uh, that, that, that don't have things like coordinated support plans in place that, that make sure that they get the support that they need. Um. You, you obviously you had a lot of concerns uh, as well. I think around about the exams fiasco. Can you take us through, you know, sort of what your concerns were and the extent to which you feel that they've now been addressed? Yeah, I mean, this, there's there's been a lot of things that I think that have been done right during this, this this pandemic, and it's a global pandemic, and it's been really challenging for governments around the world. This is a, a good example of, of where things went badly wrong, and. Um, Young people have been raising concerns right from the start of the pandemic. As soon as as soon as, soon as schools locked down, it was one of the things that older children were, were were really concerned about and getting really anxious about. And there was a lot of time to um, to involve those children and young people, to involve teachers in in coming up with it with a process that was really going to work. And I think that the the real confusion um, around the the evaluations that teachers were being asked to do and how that was then going to be moderated. The fact that everything was kind of announced um, at the last minute and after the after the fact meant that there was a, a huge level of unnecessary anxiety and um, then a an initial system that that was unjust for for a large number of, of young people. The decision then to to change that to revert back um, to the assessments, the estimations that teachers had made in good faith, I think was the right one. Um, again, we'd, we'd ask teachers to to make. Um, to make proper assessments based on all of their, their knowledge and skills 
to um, to properly assess where where students were at, um, and so to disregard that um, was 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 hugely concerning, um, and, and the moderation was 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 wrong. Um, going back to that um, is good, and it, and it gave um, gave fairness to to a great many young people. But the appeal system was still um, not human rights compliant, and that um, young people who didn't agree with the the estimations that, that that they had had no direct route of appeal, and so no direct no direct remedy. And, and so we had concerns about that in human rights terms, and the types of cases that the types of situations that that, that we'd heard about. Um, Examples like like young people who'd suffered bereavement or who had um, care responsibilities and so um, had struggled at various points during the year, but had then started to um, uh, to be able to engage more with their education and kind of building towards the exams and, and not having that taken into account in, in, in the estimation. Um, and again, just the the uh, the idea that that um, there was a real lack of clarity about how young people could could demonstrate their their, their knowledge of subjects and, and achievements um, through this process. And so, while the going back to the the estimates provided by by teachers was 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 the right thing, and for the vast majority of of children, I think gives a fair result. Um, what was still missing was the direct route of appeal for those exceptional cases where where the estimation um, wasn't a fair reflection of of the student's achievement. Um, and so it's disappointing that, that we have still haven't had uh, a, a proper opportunity for that. And I think it's a, a strong lesson for next year, or for this year. Well, I, I, you say that, and of course, we're, I think we're speaking shortly before the um, priestly review of everything that happened a couple of months ago comes out. Um, what are your hopes for that? And it's obviously going to address some big issues like next year's exams and whether some or all of those should be cancelled. What, what, what would you hope emerges from it? Yeah, it's, it's a it's a very very welcome review, um, and uh, and I think it, it's good that it's it's being done um, swiftly. I think the the most important things for me are that that children and young people and, and teachers need to be at the heart of the design of any system, um, and there needs to be uh, constant uh, feedback and and um, communication to make sure that that everyone understands um, what the process will be, and that was that was lacking previously. Um, there needs to be a, a rights-based approach as well. And so that includes not just um, participation of children and young people, but also a, a consideration of the rights of things like, like appeal. And a, an impact assessment would have, would have, been, would have been really useful um, in advance, and there should be one done now to, to look at all of the impacts on, um, on children's rights of the system that we're going to use to, to assess, children, assess students' achievement. In terms of those young people who who didn't um, have a route uh, through the appeals process to question their teachers' estimates, this you know in the exams that we've just had in the twenty twenty exams, well that we didn't have, <laughs> that being the main point. Um, but so, do we just let that lie? You know, is that just sort of too bad for them? Yeah, I mean, so it's difficult. We've had a number of, and so um, groups representing kind of young people like um, SQA, Where's Our Say, and others um, have still been pushing this. I know we've, we've um, had discussions with, with, with government, they've met with the, the Deputy First Minister, and um, and yeah, it, it's we've, 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 not, we've not been able to resolve it. Um, 
there's, there may be a kind of legal mechanism, but it's it's kind of things have things have moved on, and I think and I think that's that's something that is really unfortunate. Is that the further we get um, into this year, the the less we're able to to ensure any kind of effective remedy for for those for those young people, many of whom have moved on um, and found found other things, maybe changed courses or gone back and, and kind of redoing courses and things. Um, so the, fur- the further we get from from that decision, um, the the less the harder it is to find any kind of effective remedy. Um, there has been discussions about kind of legal action and other things, but um, it's it's something that we definitely have to learn from, um, and we definitely need to make sure that this does not happen in, in future. But um, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to to find it, find a remedy for for, the, for those young people. We would hope that it still is considered, so that the, the kind of record can be corrected. But the main one of the main things around um, the the qualifications process is to, to help you take the next step to go on to, to education, to go on to, to to jobs and other 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 opportunities and apprentices and things. And, and many of those opportunities have been lost now. And so the main thing is about about making sure this doesn't happen again. I wondered if you had a view on exams generally, generally even setting aside coronavirus and everything that that's led to. Uh, you know, some people have seen what's happened in recent months is potentially a catalyst for long-term getting rid of exams altogether. Some notable head teachers have even said that um, because their argument would be that uh, exams aren't a fair reflection um, of a student's ability and they favour certain certain types of students and are unfair in other types of students. I mean, what's, do you have a general view on whether that would be a good idea to, to envisage uh, an exam-free education system? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 not an expert. I'm not an educationalist, I, I, um, and other people are um, much much better to um, to set out the the terms of of that debate. But what is really important from a from a human rights term um, is that the the obligation that we've got to provide an education to to children and young people is an education which develops them and values them to their full potential. Um, and I do worry that that our focus on um, and quite narrow focus, in my view, on the way in which we assess attainment um, and, and exams being a big part of that, uh, I, I think could be incredibly improved in, in kind of valuing education in a much broader sense and coming up with, with new ways of, of measuring um, children's achievement um, that, that more fully reflects the, the purpose of education, which isn't just passing exams and it's not just very kind of narrow academic achievement. It's actually about developing the full person. Um, and, and I think that, that so many of the things that are really valuable to society and valuable to the economy, um, we don't measure at the moment through, through exam processes, the kind of the, the relationship building, problem solving, some of, some of those things, I think um, we don't measure as well as, as well as we could. And so um, if, I, if I was kind of involved in any way in some of these discussions, it would say to the people that know a lot more about, about, um, about education that it's important to start from that human rights principle, that the purpose of education is to develop a child to their full potential. Um, and, and that means um, every aspect, um, not just those, those formal academic ones. And I think everything that's happened has led a lot of us to reflect on our own school experience and how, you know, how might we have fared differently had we had our grades being determined purely by teacher's judgment rather than an end of year exam. How, how was your school experience? What were you like as a pupil? Did you, were you one of those ones that sort of cruised through the year and then pulled out of the bag on exam day or were you 
working hard through, throughout? What, what, what were you like? I was I was I was I was diligent, but but very very average, um, kind of academically. I've I've got to say, um, uh, and but I, I did I did certainly find exams quite quite kind of stressful. I did I did definitely kind of um, cram for them. But I um, uh, in the New Zealand system, our um, our kind of sixth form, kind of second to last year of of, um, of high school, was done by internal assessment rather than exams. And I did do better in that year than I did in the the year before and the year after, which were which were exams based. And so, so my experience was, um, I certainly found it less stressful and I got a, a higher mark when I did internal assessment than when I did exams. Um, so, so that, that's probably, probably where I, where I would sit. But um, I mean, I think that, that the, it was a very long time ago that I was at school and it was in a very different kind of educational, educational system, but um, I was at a, a big, a big school of um, 1500, um, 1500 boys it was a state school but it was um it was just boys and um and it, it kind of followed some kind of fairly um old school um militaristic tendencies i've got to say we had compulsory marching we had compulsory boxing we had compulsory marching marching, marching, yeah. <laughs> marching it's not it's not something i look back with um with any great pride or or joy but um but yeah we used to um pe consisted usually of kind of running barefoot for kind of 10 kilometers in in freezing cold weather um and that was seen as kind of character building oh my so, goodness uh, i thought i was hard done by with having cross country <laughs> yeah. um it was uh my, my my school also um sought to take legal action against the uh, decision to ban physical punishment in schools because they considered it to be a, um, a necessary part of, of kind of discipline. That was that changed when I was um, uh, in fourth form, um, but but my school was was a, a kind of stalwart in challenging the government's decision on on that. So it probably gives you a sense of the the um, the approach to schooling at, at my school, which was not was not um, was was not um, the norm across the whole the whole country, and has changed significantly. Uh, um, my my best friend now now teaches at the school, and I've, I visited um, last year, and I've now got a, a beautiful big kind of um, music and theatre department, and a lot of cultural focus, and um, it's actually gone viral a couple of times on um, on social media for the the haka that the boys um, have done, including one where my old Maori teacher um, uh, died, and, and so 1,500 boys doing a big haka and right. places that are, the school's a very different place to, to what it was when I was there and um when some of those things were strongly discouraged so um, it's so, so funny yeah. I had you going to a school you know like a tiny little school maybe yeah. homeschooled even you know <laughs> no, 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 I, mean, I went I went to, I went to school in town so um I went to school in town so um yeah um and, and again the uh I was I was a day student but there was a there was a hostel um there um so which is kind of around 150 um from kind of farms and things further away but um but but most students were day, were day students and and does all that marching practice had a, a legacy do you still find yourself marked sort of striding very purposefully around <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I wish i wish i could say that i'm a bit, I'm a bit more kind of ambling now <laughs> but but yeah no there's there's um it was a very very long time ago, and I, I think that that um, a lot of the the 
the things that I learned at school um, in, in terms of kind of some of that physical fitness and things. I had a lot of memories when I was doing Joe um, about PE at school um, and thought, why wasn't it like this? Why wasn't my PE teacher as friendly as this? Um, and, and I do, and I do when I travel around the country um, and kind of visit schools across Scotland, um, often have in the back of my, um, in the back of my head, this is so different to, to my experience. Um, and, and that is that is quite quite wonderful, and, and maybe it's always been like that in Scotland, but um, but, but certainly um, I, I think that that's one of the things that um, I always find uh, lovely, and I always think um, wish we'd been doing that when I was at school, and I wonder what difference that would have made to me if um, if we had the types of things that I that I see all around Scotland and schools. As someone who went to well, started school in 1980, so I was at school in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, I think schools have changed massively. I think all the focus on sort of uh, topical issues and policies and so on around education. We, I think we, I've written about this. I think that we sometimes lose sight of just how much things have changed over two or three decades in terms of uh, you know attitudes to say bullying to pupil voice. You know that whole idea of you know just. Uh, get on with it to get through it if you're if there's bullying going on that's I think it's completely disappeared in principle certainly um the confidence I see of young people now presenting their ideas presenting what they do talking about their learning um just night and day compared to how it was um yeah so I think uh, yeah, the experience of going through school now to my mind is is very different to how it was and in, in most ways for the better and, and, and that, again, my, my experience yesterday with the, the Northern Alliance schools um, really reinforced that even, even after all, all that's gone on over the last few months, um, just the, the huge value of kind of school as a community and being back. Because as I said, I don't think I've, I don't think I've laughed <laughs> as much as that. And just how kind of um, how clear it was that, um, that children's voice coming through really strongly, how confident the children were watching the relationship between the, the, the children and the teachers. Um, and, and and just how how kind of fun and um, and funny it was 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 absolutely brilliant and a real reminder that we've got something really really special in Scotland in, in the way the way that we deliver education um, and that even after this most incredibly kind of traumatic experience we've all had over the last the last few months that that, that schools provide this really amazing kind of anchor point and foundation um, in, in children's life um, that that. That, that we need to we need to really protect and support. Well, you maybe answered this already. This just came to mind because we've got a feature in our magazine today, where where we've asked various educators from different sectors and so on if they could change one thing about Scottish education overnight. What would it be? So I wonder what that might be for you. But also, and you maybe answered this part. But you know, what is what is the best thing about Scottish education? Would you say? I think that the the main thing for me, unsurprisingly, is going to be um, a strong focus on on children's rights. And I know that we've got schools across the the country that are doing UNICEF's Rights Respecting Schools program or doing their own kind of rights programs. But I think we can do a lot more to make sure that we build in uh, a human rights um, understanding as part of education, because that that's a commitment that we made in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 29, which talks about the purpose of education and talks about developing children to their fullest potential, also um, obliges us to make sure that they know about their own rights and understand their place in society. And, and I think we actually do, we do that, we do that pretty well. There's some really good practice across Scotland, but, but that would be the thing that I would always say um, we could improve upon. Um, and that, that includes things like, like students' voices. And the thing, the thing that, I, that I enjoy most, I think, is, is just... Um, 
the fun and the engagement and the 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 respect that I see um, that I see across the schools that that I visit and the real commitment to um, to kind of constantly constant improvement and um, and also kind of relationship based practice. The the, the fact um, yeah at the school gates we we are seeing this kind of real commitment from from teachers and leaders within the school, but also the wider school community. And I think this is really important. Um, those that are doing catering, those that are doing facilities management, that, that schools are, are communities and seeing that interaction um, and seeing kind of children walking into a place where they know that they're respected and they, they know that they're part of the community and that they've got a voice, that always kind of really fills me with um, pride and happiness. You were saying about your sort of the importance about, you know, sort of children knowing their rights. And of course, we couldn't speak to you without mentioning the fact that the government set the wheels in motion now for incorporating the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child into domestic law. So and, and that would mean that Scotland would be the first country in the UK to do that. I mean, it, it, this must be a pretty big coup for you. But can you explain to us uh, and, to, and to the teachers and um, that, that, you know, sort of that, that listen to this podcast, why we should care about that and why that's important? This is the most important thing we can do in legal terms and uh, to protect children's rights. Um, it's it's hugely hugely exciting. This has been something that that um, I and many others have campaigned on for for decades now. Um, so it's hugely exciting that we're going to bring in this new law, which is going to take all of the rights of children and put them into domestic Scots law. And so. Um, the Convention on the Rights of the Child um, is, in my view, the most beautiful, um, fantastic international legal document. And so it's a legal document um, signed by every country in the world, apart from the USA, for reasons that I'm not going <laughs> to go into. But everyone in the world has kind of agreed that these sets of legally binding rights, um, and it's set in a framework of, of starting with the point that all children should grow up in a family environment of happiness and love and understanding, and then sets out all the things that governments need to do to make sure that children get everything that they need to do, not just to, not just for survival and development, but also that they can be involved in their communities. And that, so participation comes through really strongly and that we should take every decision in the best interest of the child. Um, and so sets out all of these rights, and so civil and political rights, economic, social, cultural rights, and humanitarian law, and puts it all in one document, which is drafted really carefully around saying that children need to be at the centre of decision making and governments and those in charge need to um, deliver all the things to ensure that children have an adequate standard of living and the highest attainable standard of health and an education which develops them to their, their fullest potential and it gives special protection for disabled children and care experienced children. So it's, it's this amazing kind of legal document and we've got some of those things in our domestic law, but this new bill, which is before parliament, will take all of those rights and put them into domestic law. And that means that we can hold the government to account a lot more. And, and one, of the, one of the really important things is that in article four of the convention, it says that the state has to use all available resources to the maximum extent possible to deliver on these rights. And so that's going to be a really powerful tool for, for those um, in education or social work or healthcare to be able to say to those that set budgets, you're not properly funding this. And actually that's a failure in children's rights terms. And so one of the, even though I'm a lawyer and I like talking about rights, actually a lot of this is about money as well. And this will give us an additional tool to say where services are underfunded, that will be a breach of the, the Convention on the Rights of the Child because you've failed to do 
a proper children's rights-based budget. Um, you failed to do proper impact assessments, and therefore um, we can start to challenge some of those decisions and actually get um, more efficient use of resources into some of the things that are going to benefit children most. So that that's really exciting. Um, and also kind of locking into law some of the things around children's participation as well. So, so it, it's, it's really exciting. Um, the countries that have done this um, already, um, so some countries, as soon as they sign an international law, it becomes part of the domestic law. And then some countries like us, you need to have a, have a, a domestic piece of law. And, and so there's quite a few countries that have done that. Um, all the kind of Scandinavian countries have made good progress on this recently. And all the countries that have done it, um, what they've seen is not a big rush to legal cases and people taking legal action, but actually this kind of really gradual cultural change as people start to understand the importance of, of children's rights. And to, the children that benefit most are the ones whose rights are most at risk. So again, disabled children, care experienced children, kind of socially, socially excluded children, um, children living in poverty, really, really big one. Um, so what it does is it gives tools for all of those around children, like, like teachers, like social workers, like others, like parents, um, additional tools to make sure that we have everything we need to deliver on children's rights. So it's it's hugely exciting. I mean, it's a, it's a lifetime's work, and um, uh, and I couldn't be more delighted. And I think the bill um, that the the government's created um, is is incredibly good. And I usually spend a lot of my time um, being very critical of the government because my job is to hold them to account. And I think this is probably the, the first time that, um, that that there's something that I actually think is is so good that that my my comments are going to be fairly limited in terms of what we can do to improve it. I mean, can you just, you know, sort of for us, just so that we sort of understand properly, I, if we had had the UNCRC already incorporated into domestic law at the time of lockdown and the exams fiasco or the results fiasco is maybe a bit more accurate, yeah. what what would that what difference would that have made or could it have potentially made to children and young people? So t taking, taking the exams um, as an example, I think there probably was already even a way to take legal action um, under the current law, but it certainly would have made it much, much stronger. And so we would have been able to, to right from the start say that that, um, that if you don't change this, um, then then there'll be legal action. And, and so and so that would have been, that would have been something that would have changed kind of very quickly and, and kind of most obviously um, that having a, a non-compliance rights, a non-human non rights compliant, non-children's rights compliant um, system for, for accreditation would have, would have been actionable. And, and so that would have, I suspect, changed decisions. It also would have meant that um, all of the decisions that government made um, would have had to have an impact assessment done of them. And that's something we'd called on government to do anyway, even though there's not a legal requirement at the moment. Um, and in the end, we did one ourselves with the the... Children's Human Rights Observatory for Scotland, um, which is kind of academic and civil society, we ended up doing our own because government didn't do it. And impact assessments are really important because before you make a decision, you need to make sure that that decision is legitimate. And it can only be legitimate if you've actually involved the people directly affected by the decision and, and considered all the human rights implications. And we've not really seen any of that um, through the decision making in, in, in lockdown it would have allowed us to, to much more strongly tackle things like, like food insecurity and poverty. Again, really big concern that um, those that benefited from things like breakfast clubs and, and after school clubs and, and free school meals, um, huge concerns that they weren't getting the support that they needed. That would have made some of those things much more actionable, which um, 
going to court is always the worst way to solve things, but the fact that they are actionable and justiciable would have really focused minds at kind of local authority and government level to make sure that the resources were getting where they needed to be. So we would have seen um, we would have seen big changes, I think, in terms of how quickly some of these human rights issues and even things like access to to the internet um, we would have seen. And, and uh, yeah, one of one of one of the questions some of the the older um, children in Orkney had said to me asked me yesterday was will you ask Nicola Sturgeon to get us 5G, um, which, which they, they, they thought they thought, they thought was really, um, was, was, was raised in a humorous way, but there's a real important human rights point around that is there's a growing acknowledgement of the importance of, of the internet in human rights terms, in terms of access to education, access to, to recreation and socialization, access to services. Um, and so again, I, th I think if we incorporated the, the CRC earlier, um, it would have given us a, a much stronger tool to really challenge government on its failure to make sure that people were, were connected when we went into lockdown. So how would you sum up the past six months through the prism of children's rights? Because on the one hand, we have had this big move to give children more rights than ever. But then a lot of people would maybe argue that uh, given everything that's happened with the pandemic, that they've come, children's, children's rights have come under threat more than ever. You know, the right to meet other children, the right to an education, the right to be free from... Uh, to live a life free of violence and abuse. I mean, how would you, you know, sum up uh, the, weighing all that up to, against each other? It's been incredibly difficult. And, and right, right at the beginning of the pandemic, the, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child raised global concerns um, about the, the impact on children's physical and mental health and their access to education and rights and issued a, a, a list of priority areas for, for, for states, which we we're promoting very strongly with with government, so we knew this was going to be really tough right right at the start. Um, and I think that that one of the disappointing things has been that Scotland, I think, has been quite rightly heralded in, in recent years as being a real champion of children's rights and of children's participation in decision making. And we've got this commitment to incorporation. As soon as the system was under pressure and we hit this this crisis, um, as every government around the world did. Um, those things just got lost. So children, young people weren't consulted or involved um, and their families and, and, and professionals often weren't consulted in decision-making. And Government said, we're having to make decisions very quickly and they're complicated decisions. We don't have time to do this. And that actually undermines the legitimacy of those decisions and it, and it doesn't properly respect rights because we know that if they had done that, they would have come to, to better decisions. Um, there was a failure to, to assess um, the impact of decisions on, on children's rights as well. And using some of the tools like impact assessments, real failure to do those things. And we know that if those things had been done, we would have got better decisions. Um, so I'm not, I, 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 don't, I don't think it, it's, it's useful to, to be, be hugely critical of, of government because I think it, it's been an, an impossible situation for governments all across the world and even the best performing governments um, haven't got everything right and, and our government's been very open about not getting everything right but the disappointing thing I think was um, was not doing the things that we already knew how to do not doing not not following up on things like participation and decision making and impact assessments and, and, and that means we didn't do as well as, as we could have um, and, and I think that when we're next faced with with um, additional crisis, additional restrictions, and things, we we, we can we can learn from that. And there's an opportunity to do better. Um, but there have been some some real strengths. I think some of the communication from from government's been been really strong, and some of the decisions, like the the commitment, the investment of 30 million on um, on digital, and like some of the additional investment on on poverty issues, are, are really welcome. Um, but 
in future, I would like to see uh, a more structured approach to ensuring children's rights as we make those decisions. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, the, you know, would you like to see any more national direction on how the money for addressing the issue of digital poverty is spent? You know, because if I just sort of think about, you know, in Glasgow, we've had the rollout of iPads to every child from P6 to S6. Uh, in the Scottish borders where I live. They're in the midst of doing something very similar. They've got refresh schemes that are sort of built into that. They're trying to, you know, sort of upgrade the connections within schools to make sure that they have, you know, sort of good internet, you know, sort of um, connectivity whilst they're in school. And then obviously, though, as you go around the 32 local authorities in Scotland, that picture is going to be quite different so is there a need for a more national direction, do you think, about how that money is spent? Because often, I suppose, if you were to ask questions about, um, you know, whether or not we're um, up to speed, are we equipping all young people to be able to now take part in um, online learning should another lockdown occur? The answer would just simply be, well, we've given the money to the local authorities and um, you know, and they will address. They they will do what is needed locally. Is that good enough? The responsibility remains on on the, on the government. It's the, the the government that has the responsibility to deliver on on children's rights. And and, and we know that connectivity um, to the to the internet um, is hugely important in rights terms because. Um, particularly in relation to education, but also in relation to, to wider kind of leisure and, and connectivity and access to information. These, these, are, all, these are all rights um, that are really important. Again, some of the mental health discussions around, around being able to access mental health services and things really hugely important at the moment, a lot of which is online. Um, so that obligation remains on the government. Um, it does make sense that um, that those that are closest to the children um, are strongly involved in the decision-making and, again, Different parts of Scotland are very different with kind of rural and island communities and dense urban communities. And so there may be different solutions that are needed in different places. And so some of those decisions um, are best made, made locally, but it doesn't change the obligation on the state to make sure that every child has access to their rights. And so, so I think that, that's really important. It's not, it's not as simple as saying we've just allocated some money. The government also has to be able to assure itself and, and assure me as Children's Commissioner and assure the international community that it's meeting its obligations. Um, and that means being able to demonstrate that actually children have got access to, to digital technology and, and digital connection. And, and we, know, we know that that isn't happening. Um, and I think the last, the last six months has, has really shown the disproportionate impact of, um, of social exclusion, digital exclusion, and those children and young people are affected by poverty and so digital being part of it, but also housing, also food. Um, and that really does need to need to change. Um, when the Special Rapporteur on, on poverty was, was here a, a couple of years ago from, from, from the UN, um, he raised serious concerns at the UK level, but also at the, at the Scottish level about saying that, that the, this is a rich country and um, we need to be able to prioritise and use our available resources to the maximum extent possible, um, particularly on things like children's rights. You, you've obviously you've won the argument over the UNCRC. 
So <laughs> what's next? You just get to sit back. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, it's, still, it's still a matter that's before Parliament and there's still a bit of work to do. Um, yeah. uh, when will it be? When is it most, when it, when's the earliest that it's likely to become part of domestic law then? So um, I think that the timetable in Parliament is, is looking like kind of February, March, so just, just very much before the end of, of, of the, the session. Um, but there's no commencement date on the face of the bill. One of the things that I'm, I'm seeking to change, actually, possibly, like if, if the Parliament... Um, is minded to um, would be to actually set um, commencement date because I would be concerned if there was a very long um, period before before it, it came in it came in. So I'm looking for a, for a very early commencement date, um, but that's still still up for discussion. It's not on on the face of the bill. Um, and then there's going to be a lot of work around implementation. I think that that um, getting rights into law is really important, but it's about what then happens, how we deliver the cultural change, um, how we look at the way in which we, we structure budgets and things. And so so that, that that I've still got a lifetime of work on the implementation side of it. But um, but what what is really exciting is that when I when I became children's commissioner three years ago, I'm kind of just over halfway through. I had three big kind of legislative things that I wanted to to work on, and one was the physical punishment of children, and that and that um, uh, law was passed last year and will come into effect um, very shortly. One was on the age of criminal responsibility, and I and I didn't didn't achieve that as well as I would. It's going to it's going to move from eight to twelve, but nowhere near. Um, the minimum international standard of 14 and nowhere near where I think it needs to be kind of higher. And so we're still using the criminal law to, to address children's harmful behavior, which is, which is wrong and ineffective. Um, so that, that was kind of a, that's kind of a part, a, a part win maybe, um, but I've still got some more work to do on that and then incorporation. So um, I've still got a wee bit to do for the, the next three years. And, and more, and more importantly than that, I suppose, is that children and young people are still telling me that particularly things like, Poverty needs a lot more work, mental health support for children and young people, and environmental concerns. I think one of the, the big things that came up yesterday with, with the children I was discussing and always comes up is that um, real concern about, about um, the environment and um, kind of climate justice. And uh, to some extent, because we've been so focused on the, the global pandemic, um, we've, we've maybe taken our eye off a wee bit on some of the, the work on that. And so, so we, need, we need to, to remember that that all the kind of the, the day job continues um, during the pandemic, kind of all the stuff that we need to to, to make sure that children are safe and safe and happy and, and getting the things that they need and playing this amazing role that they do as human rights defenders on big issues like, like global climate change. So um, just to come full circle then, is it still the dream job? <laughs> It's absolutely the dream job. It's um, and now after hitting the kind of halfway point, it is. I'm, I'm already starting to kind of feel feel a bit sad that kind of time time's running out. But um, it, it it's it is it is the best job in the world, and I'm, I'm yeah hugely excited about it. And I um, and I can say it's the best job in the world because I also I work with children's commissioners across across the world, and particularly across Europe. Um, and and I think most of them agree that, that that Scotland's doing pretty well in lots of things at the moment, and that my job's great. So, um, so absolutely love it. And um, as I've been saying to young people across the country, the job's going to be available in, in kind of uh, two and a half, three years. And so I would, would love to see um, children and young people getting really involved in that process. I'd love to see a, a, a younger commissioner actually, but um, but but even, but even even if even if not, um, it's really important that children and young people get really involved in that in that process of, of choosing who the next commissioner is going to be. Well, thank you so much for um, joining us. 
um, that's been so interesting and um, and interesting to hear, you know, sort of just about the um, what the you know what having something like the UNCRC like incorporated into domestic law would actually mean, and um, and maybe that will give some um, comfort to young people going forward because I I guess we don't know where this uh, pandemic is going to take us and what's going to happen, you know, sort of if we're going to go through another lockdown. So they have um, they'll hopefully have a, a lot more uh, recourse. Been a, been, a, been a great great pleasure to, to talk to you both and I, and I think that that is um, a great way to end in terms of that children and young people have done an amazing job over the last six months seven months we've asked them to make incredible sacrifices and the, the impact of the restrictions have been disproportionate on them but they've really shown um, beyond any doubt that they are an amazing essential part of our, of our communities and they've brought incredible kind of joy and passion um, and, and kind of real strength to, um, to a lot of the, the decision making, but also the, the, the work that I've done um, through a digital school community and in their communities. It has been something I think we should be really proud of. Well, Bruce Adamson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Man.